X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Friday, August 28th. Today, back in the day, August 28th, 1855, Harry Lane was born. He was born in Corvallis. He ended up serving as Portland's mayor, and he went on to be U.S. Senator from Oregon. You've been to the county named after him. It's Lane County. He appointed the first female police officer in America in 1908, and he had the vision the city should host an annual Rose Festival. In the Senate, he was a leading advocate for women's suffrage, and he advocated for more and a more benevolent relationship between the U.S. government and the Native American population. He was also one of just a handful of members of Congress to vote against American participation in the war in April of 1917. People started to organize a recall effort around him. The campaign was rendered moot when Harry Lane died on May 23, 1917. And on August 28, 1963, one of the most important speeches in human history was given. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his I Have a Dream speech addressing the March on Washington, or its longer name, the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream. That one day, even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream. My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day, down in Alabama, with its vicious races, with its governor, having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. Today we'll start with the Quick 6 News headlines. Alex Zelinsky of the Portland Mercury joins us with a look at local news, the city, and our mayor. And we have an interview with Willie Levinson, founder of the Human Access Project on creating water access for Portlanders. X-Ray. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Lots of protest news to get to today. Starting us off, Donald Trump... Donald Trump, during his Hatch Act violating Republican convention event, used Portland as the poster child of what city to avoid. Meanwhile, there were 11 arrests made in an anti-ICE protest. Several hundred protesters marched to the downtown ICE building on Wednesday evening. It drew attention to the shared threat of state violence that African-Americans, Latinos, and immigrants all face. Police reported that some protesters vandalized the building. 
After a brief standoff, the police declared an unlawful assembly at 11 p.m. and cleared the crowd using munitions and tear gas. Eleven were arrested. And in the suburbs, right-wing protesters gathered outside Gresham City Hall. What were they protesting? A Black Lives Matter flag flying outside the building. On Wednesday afternoon, pro-police protesters were opposed by counter-demonstrators who support Black Lives Matter. The two groups, separated by aggression police, mostly shouted back and forth, although one fistfight did break out at one point. Several people in the anti-Black Lives Matter crowd were carrying guns openly. One of them, Alan Swinney, had drawn a gun on opposing protesters at a rally last Saturday. Here's what OPB had to say about it, maybe with a glint in their eye. Portland police say they've been looking for Alan Swinney, who was photographed pulling a gun on anti-fascist protesters in downtown Portland Saturday. Our reporters found him leading a rally in front of the Gresham City Hall yesterday. The FBI is expanding investigations into violence at Portland protests. The FBI said it was going to assign more agents to the Portland field office to investigate criminal activity during the racial justice protests. The FBI is particularly interested in small fires that have been set in police buildings. Those investigations could be referred to prosecutors for federal charges. And to be clear, that would make it outside the hands of the Multnomah County DA, Mike Schmidt. And the ACLU is suing over the federal response to the Portland protests. A lawsuit was filed against Donald Trump, the Department of Homeland Security, the U.S. Marshals Service, and hundreds of federal law enforcement officers. The lawsuit condemns excessive use of force and, I'm quoting, unlawful attempts to crush black protesters and their supporters. It's one of the most comprehensive lawsuits to come out of the federal government's intervention in Portland protests this past July. Plaintiffs include protesters, military vets, and teachers. Many of the plaintiffs were injured by impact munitions or beaten by the police. Among the plaintiffs is Mark Pettibone, the protester who was unlawfully detained in an unmarked car by federal officers. The lawsuit also includes two organizations, Rose City Justice and the Black Millennial Movement. The ACLU is seeking damages for injuries sustained by the plaintiffs. They also want the court to rule that the actions of the Trump administration violated the Constitution and federal law. Your daily dose of data. Oregon health officials have reported 212 new coronavirus cases. Good news, lowest number of new cases announced in the past 10 days. Bad news, five new deaths. And OHSU has dropped its massive coronavirus study due to concerns of lack of minority participation. The study was intended to track the virus in Oregon and understand its impact, particularly on minority communities. But critics said the study failed to attract enough people of color to gain an accurate picture of the state's population. BIPOC representation is essential in coronavirus studies, as those communities have been more likely to get or be impacted by the virus. The study planned to track 100,000 people's symptoms and to regularly test 10,000 volunteers. The failure of OHSU's program is a major blow to Oregon efforts to study and track the virus. In Washington state, there are now a total of 72,161 reported cases and 1,880 deaths. Governor Kate Brown has been silent on power and water shutoffs. Since March, West Coast governors have had a pact of sorts to handle the coronavirus, including coordinating on early stay-at-home orders. But as reported by OPB, in one notable way, Governor Kate Brown has been far more hands-off than her counterparts. California and Washington have issued strong directives to make sure people don't get their power or water turned off because they can't pay their bills. Governor Brown hasn't issued such a directive in Oregon, and now many utilities here have resumed regular disconnection practices. EWEB, the Eugene Water and Electric Board, for instance, resumed disconnections on August 10th. The Salem Electric Cooperative brought back disconnections in July, and the city of Ashland has also resumed disconnecting people for both power and electricity following a break of doing so for several months. 
Governor Brown, meanwhile, has been almost completely silent on the issue, apparently trusting that utilities around the state will protect customers. Powell's Books will no longer sell its books on Amazon. Amazon is a consistent threat to independent booksellers. The convenience of online commerce siphons business away from real businesses in the real world. And if local booksellers list their products on Amazon, the website, of course, still gets a cut of the profits. So Powell's, one of the world's largest independent bookstores, is taking its products off Amazon entirely. In a note to customers on Wednesday, CEO Emily Powell said the vitality of our neighbors and neighborhoods depend on the ability of local businesses to thrive. We will not participate in undermining that vitality. Powell recently reopened its downtown store after temporarily shutting down in May. It also has a website for customers who prefer to buy online. And some good news. The new Pinocchio adaptation is filming in Portland. Guillermo del Toro, Oscar-winning director of Pan's Labyrinth and the Shape of Water, is putting a new spooky spin on Pinocchio. Production of the Italian fable is taking place right here in the Portland office of animation studio Shadow Machine. The film is also being produced by the Jim Henson Company. The recently released cast includes Kate Blanchett, Christoph Waltz, Ewan McGregor, and Tilda Swinton. They plan to release the movie on Netflix in 2021. And that is today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Alex Zielinski, news editor of the Portland Mercury, joins us with a focus on local news headlines. Good morning, Alex. Good morning. Well, there are still protests in Portland. You are still covering those protests. There is still a mayor of Portland. That mayor is still running for re-election, and it is still the subject of occasional national news. What is your eyeball on now? Um, that's a great question. I ask myself that almost every morning when I check the news. Um, it's changing so quickly, especially kind of the nature of each protest every night and kind of who's involved and how how folks are responding. Um, it's interesting. We're at a point now where uh, the business community, especially downtown, well, mostly downtown businesses, are really um, are getting louder about their upset um, about these protests going on and really turning to the mayor's office and putting pressure on the mayor's office uh, to do something about them, um, which is tricky because, you know, a lot of the arguments are coming from, um, uh, you know, people with a good amount of money uh, who own property, um, not just your small business owners, but folks downtown who uh, have hotels and have kind of big, big businesses that, that, um, that thrive on, on visitors. And they're um, kind of putting a lot of the blame on their lack of traffic and lack of, um, I guess, interest in people visiting on these protests and kind of how they've turned into these nightly disruptions downtown and they're frightening workers and they're making a mess, um, but not really mentioning too much the impact that the coronavirus and the pandemic has had on business and tourism and sales in general. Um, I think at the same time, there's also... I'll pause there for a second. Pause there. Yeah. So Greg Goodman, who's uh, who you know was born rich and now richer, uh, is may his family inherited a bunch of land in downtown Portland. His major landowner has made friends with city councilors. Has made friends with uh, uh, with uh, the leading political consultants, who uh, Mark Weiner being being probably the most notable. Uh, to maintain that, you know, maintain influence over his properties. He came out and right. said that there's, uh, that, that 
all these businesses are leaving downtown because of protests. What you just said is, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> Before the protests, there were people not shopping in stores, people who were not going to these businesses downtown because they were cat- worried about cat- catching a potentially deadly disease. Or they had to be closed, you know, like there there's orders um, asking these, these businesses to be closed. I mean, in, in the uh, letter you mentioned, Greg Goodman uh, talks about how Airbnb had to close down and lost a lot of business. And if you look back, that happened months before the protests even began. And so I think wait, so he wait, so he cited an example. He cited an example of, of a business closure that he started to put on the backs of downtown protesters that in fact happened well before the protests even started. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> and I mean, that's helpful context. Thank time, you. There are there are cha- not chains, but there are you know local businesses that have other locations that are you know maybe they have some downtown and some elsewhere, and those ones that aren't downtown are reopening. Um, but I'd argue that that's because they're in neighborhoods where people are actually starting to go out and go to restaurants or go to, you know, stores. Downtown, there's really not a ton of activity in general. And so who knows? It's, it's definitely a business decision that I have no experience in making. <laughs> um, but it, it is, there is a, a pretty interesting discussion going around about kind of who's, um, livelihood is being damaged and at what cost right now. I think the interesting, another interesting kind of wrinkle here is that um, Greg Goodman and, and fellow uh, downtown, old town, you know, property owners and business owners are are saying, hey, there's, there's so many homeless people, so many people camping out on the streets right now too, um, which is deterring business, but at the same time is also, um, you know, we also need to help these people, need to do something to, to, to bring them into housing and, and, you know, get them off the streets um, when they aren't really suggesting an option to, to you know, solve homelessness. Um, and, and they aren't really speaking to these people about maybe what they need, people who are houseless right now. But they're kind of using and pandering to the, we care about the houseless, um, you know, uh, angle to, um, to just want to continue kind of the, the constant push from downtown businesses to clean up, um, in quotes, clean up the sidewalks and clean up the streets to make it appealing. I mean, I, it's, and, you know, yesterday Ted Wheeler had a press conference um, where he didn't really, uh, you know, unveil anything new. It was kind of a lot of the same, okay, we need to, we need to um, you know, come together as a community and really uh, fight uh, you know, work together and, and join arms and uh, stop protesting and take care of, you know, our business communities and, and our neighborhoods. And, uh, you know, he mentioned how it's time to start, you know, um, cleaning all the graffiti up and replanting things and, you know, helping with um, just beautifying downtown. Uh, but kind of picked and shows. Like he also mentioned we need to, we need to maintain and keep up the, the beautiful murals that have gone up um, in result of the, the George Floyd protest, but also we need to restore, um, you know, some of the, like take down all the graffiti and kind of like there, there are these things that, he's walking a really tricky line and I, you know, I don't envy the position he's in at all right now. Um, he's always kind of had to uh, walk between the business community, which is his, you know, the, the people who, give him the most money in elections, they give the city a lot of money, um, and 
people who everyone else. <laughs> yeah, so he wants um, he wants to be he wants to be able to say to Greg Goodman, "Hey, I don't want downtown to die. I don't want downtown businesses not to be there. I want to be on the side of downtown businesses." And one of the things that's been a gem in Portland is that even during the era of the uh, of the real decline of downtown America in the 70s and 80s, Portland was a place that had a revitalization of its downtown. That was a that has been a point of real pride. He wants to be able to say that to Greg Goodman. Goodman and Greg Goodman's work with other business people who feel the same way and also want to deal with the activist communities like, hey, yeah, and and we also want to be on the side of black lives and not the and not jackbooted thugs who are trying to put down protesters and tear gas them in the face. Yeah. Yeah, it's not a you know it's a, an enviable position to be in, um, and so but but the the tricky thing is is that he's really well he's expected to announce some kind of um, more solid action and proposal today about how to um, do all of these things at once, how to address business concerns and maybe address the concerns among um, protesters in the community uh, when it comes to the way police continue to be treating protesters. Uh, and address just reforms in the police bureau. It's interesting because these are things that have been called for for a long time. I mean, we're at, you know, we're nearly into 90 days protesting. Maybe we already are. And um, yesterday was interesting. He admitted, someone asked him, hey, we're, you know, the same point. We're, we've been doing this for a while. Like, why now are you saying you're going to, um, you know, start figuring out solutions um, and he admitted that he just he hadn't he was overwhelmed and he wasn't asking for help and he had taken on too much and uh, that he hadn't responded to um, when you know if you look back in the past months there are a lot of people who have been reaching out to say like hey we have suggestions we have advice I mean even Joanne Hardesty and fellow city commissioner uh, offered to, to take uh, the police bureau off his hands, which you know is obviously a, a bit bigger, not not just a, a kind um, aid, but kind of a yeah, it's not but, just an offer. It was a it was a threat. It was a, it was a challenge. Right, right, but you know, like there there have been people um, who have you know really been been trying to help uh, bring change and suggestions and have these conversations, and so. Um, I guess, you know, the mayor's office is at a, a tipping point now where it's time to really address these things. But it was interesting to hear him say that he he realized he couldn't do it alone, um, yeah. which I guess he had been doing. Um, it's, it's really hard to tell kind of what's going on behind the scenes right now. Let's please do this again next week, Alex, if not sooner. But let's do this again next week because uh, there's more to get into on this topic. We do have to move along. But any last thing in 30 seconds that you're following next? Uh, on the horizon, um, there's going to be, an, <laughs> I think I talked about this last week, but there's going to be another interesting audit coming out from the city that you, we can talk about next week. But I think it's worth keeping an eye on um, when it comes to uh, change and equity um, from within the city's government. Well, we will look forward to that. Alex Zelensky, thank you so much for your work and thanks for spending time with us. Thanks for having me on. Willie Levinson, founder of the Human Access Project, joins us next, sharing his vision for river access in Portland. Willie, hello. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So tell us a little bit about why you founded the Human Access Project. Well, um, I grew up swimming and I was always around water 
in college in southwestern Virginia at Radford University. Shout out to Radford if there's anybody out there from Radford. Um, I spent basically every summer um, at campus and I discovered the New River which flowed behind our campus and I innocently was invited to uh, go out for a day of inner tubing and intellectually I had a sense of what that was going to be about but once I got on the river, I was just floating down and taking in nature and people watching. I just sort of fell in love with that river and then spent as much time as I could on it. Then I moved to Boise, Idaho after college. And without really knowing much about the West, Boise, as I understand now, is the Paris of river park systems in the world. Mm. It's a pretty big statement, but it's absolutely true from my perspective. So when you live in Boise at that time, 25 years ago, the natural progression was from people from smaller towns who had a little ambition maybe to move to Boise. And then if you had more ambition than that, you'd move to Portland. So there's this kind of natural pipeline of people who had moved to Portland. And I just assume not knowing anything about the West outside of the fact that even then Portland had this larger than life reputation as being a green city that the Willamette was the place that you would swim, obviously, because if Boise, Idaho had this great place to swim, it was just a small town, and Portland was this mecca for greenness, I didn't even really look into it. Mm-hmm. If I had known um, that Portland had such little river access and such a poor relationship with the river, I don't know if I would have moved here, in all mm-hmm. honesty. So once I got here and I got indoctrinated socially, uh, culturally, like you do when you move to Portland 25 years ago, you get told it rains a lot and never touch the Willamette because it'll kill you or your skin will flake off, you'll grow horns. Everybody seemed to have a pocket joke about the Willamette. So at first I was really disappointed by that, and then I got really pissed off about it because it just didn't reconcile to me how a community that identified itself as green could make a joke about a river that they had hand in screwing up themselves. Um, and that the more research that I did over the years, it took me about uh, 15 years before I finally got off the couch to try to make some um, impact on that. Uh, you know, the science said that it was actually safe to swim in the Willamette, um, and I just knew that the power of water with, uh, and the effect it has on humans, that this was a winning cause. You know, looking to create better access to the Willamette in downtown was something I could get my arms around something that would have a big impact on the city and something I felt really strong about. Mm. Now you've made reference to the history of, of the river. It wasn't always a super safe place to swim in. There been uh, there would be a combined sewage overflow year-round that might last for days at a time. And we've gone a whole year without any sewage overflows. How did we get from that place where the river was unsafe to swim or perceived as unsafe to swim to where we are now? Well, it's really remarkable. I mean, we probably haven't had... It, we, there probably hasn't been one year of no sewage overflow in the river since the 1930s. Mm. So, you know, this is is a major milestone for us to celebrate. Just, you know, working now on Portland, an urban river, there's a real urban river renaissance around the world. You know, most major cities would, you know, kill, kill Sue Strongord, but they would you know, love to change water bodies with us. I mean, we're in such an, in an unbelievable position to have, you know, there's clearly a lot more work to be done on the Willamette River. 
Um, you know, for us, swimming is a platform for hope. And, you know, when you get people connected to a place, Jacques Cousteau says it very well, people protect what they love. So um, I think, I guess it was the, the big pipe project is the largest civic investment in Portland's history. Um, it cost $1.44 billion. It took 20 years to complete. It was compelled, the city was compelled to do it because Nina Bell, um, an environmental activist in Portland, um, sued the city under the Clean Water Act to improve the sewage situation. Um, as a result, as you said, um, we used to have 50 to 100 sewage overflows a year. When they happened, they'd be measured in days. So now, um, you know, we've gone one full year of no sewage overflow in our river. It's amazing, an incredible thing to celebrate. And it's largely thanks to the big pipe, but also our green infrastructure in the city. So when you see those dugout uh, concrete things with plants in them on the side of the road, those are bioswales. And what they do is they divert rainwater from entering into our sewage system by naturally um, uh, just infiltrating back into the ground. It is our city's sponge. The green infrastructure is our city's sponge. So whether that's eco-roofs or bioswales, they handle an unbelievable amount of water. And ultimately, it's called a combined sewer overflow, because even now when there's a sewage overflow and, you know, whenever it happens, I feel collective shame for our city. But there was only one in 2019. There's two in 2018. I mean, it is now a statistical anomaly when it happens. When it does happen, it's measured in minutes rather than days. And it's 90 percent stormwater, 10 percent sewage. No apologies for what it is, but just to have the context, it's mm-hmm. not as uh, it's not as horrible as uh, it might sound on first blush. So, you know, that's that's really largely been what's responsible for at least uh, sewage overflow stopping. And then in terms of water quality, I mean, there's been uh, scores of environmental organizations, uh, you know, governmental organizations such as the city of Portland um, who have just done millions and millions of dollars of habitat improvements, uh, look to... Uh, uh, point source pollution where polluters would put uh, runoff directly and untreated runoff into the water and really everything that's done in terms of the environmental movement around the Willamette River is on the back of Tom McCall who mm-hmm. started the DEQ like it's, it's, it's funny because I consider the DEQ there was a time in humans past where a department of environmental quality wasn't necessary I mean it's all just kind of a function of um, humans putting too many bad things into our environment, but Tom McCall started that, and you know that was what led to the start of uh, uh, addressing point source pollution. Mm. Now, a lot of your recent work is more about increasing access to the river for things like swimming, kayaking, and boating. Tell us about some of your recent efforts. Well, uh, according to Parks and Recreation, only five percent of downtown Portland has access to the river's edge. So, um, like. You know, if you're looking at the Willamette from the seawall down, to me it's like being at the Blazers game at the 300 level. You are at the game, but it is not the same thing as being on the 100 level, where you can see how big all the players are, how fast they are. You can hear them talking to each other, sneakers squeak. At the river's edge, you have a different experience than at the seawall. You can see the river ripple. You can see fish jump. That is where the river experience happens. So it's really important for us. You know, we view our work as cultural change, uh, transforming how Portland feels about the river. So uh, the more we can get people to the water's edge, if we can get people in the water, once people get in the water, um, you know, their relationship is immediately transformed. Uh, you know, ultimately, we're just looking to challenge people 
to see, you know, how did you develop this opinion about the Willamette and to just do a simple Google search on Willamette River water quality. Hopefully, uh, it will make people feel hopeful uh, because regardless of what cause you're working on, if the public feels hopeless about a situation, the battle's over. And to me, when people have made jokes about the Willamette, I feel like it's happening less and less, which is amazing. Uh, you know, it's an expression of people being hopeless. So the work that we've done around creating access, uh, we spearheaded the opening of Poets Beach, Portland's first official downtown swimming beach, first official swimming beach period uh, under the Markham Bridge on the west side. On the east side, we removed 19 tons of concrete with inmate work crews and volunteers over four years by hand. We had wow. to get permission from nine separate agencies to remove the concrete chunks. Um, and we got a yes with the stipulation that we cannot use heavy mechanized equipment. That led to the opening of Audrey McCall Beach, uh, which we nicknamed after uh, Tom McCall's wife, Audrey. Um, and uh, last year, we privately funded a lifeguarding, lifeguarding program just to make sure what was opened up it felt safe. Uh, this past year, after six years, this July, after six years of advocacy, uh, we got permission to install eight, la eight ladders on the Duckworth dock, uh, which took less than four hours to install after mm -hmm. six years of work. And now that is, in my opinion, Portland's nicest place to swim. Um, that's right off the Esplanade in between the Steel and Burnside bridges. It's a 300-foot-long dock, which is the length of a football field, 10 feet across. There's incredible sunset views there, and the U-shaped configuration of the dock allows for protected swimming on the inside of the dock. So that, that's the uh, new Portland swimming hole, kind of. That's uh, Portland's tip right now. So uh -huh. it's very quickly emerging this really fun uh, dock culture scene, similar to what we've seen on by the Hawthorne Bridge, only this is much longer. It's probably three times as long. Now, creating new beaches, building up recreational access to the river isn't necessarily the first thing that people think about when creating a city budget. How have you managed to get the city's attention and support for your cause? You know, we, I mean, always, I never want money to stop us from what we're doing. So generally what I try to do is privately fundraise. It just At this point, it just doesn't cost a significant amount of money to get these conversations started. So in the case of Audrey McCall Beach, we privately fundraised and we removed 19 tons of concrete. Mm. Um, so rather than saying, hey, city, you should do this, as an activist, I just hate the word should because you could just throw a dart at a dartboard for all the shoulds in the world. I mean, mm. uh, rather than saying should, I just assume dig in and try to make some impact and just create situations that are very difficult to say no to. In the case of Audrey McCall Beach, when it was strewn with concrete chunks, it was really difficult to have the imagination to see how that was a beach. Once we put the work in first, it was very clear that it had potential to be a beach. And, um, you know, that was, you know, I think putting that work in on our own, that significant amount of work over that period of time um, was just a very compelling thing that was just hard to say no to. I think, you know, the government likes to uh, reward citizen initiative. And when you consider the leveraging that's involved from all that volunteer time that was done and uh, feeding that, that energy, um, you know, it's, it's, a good, it's a good investment. Uh, you know, in the case of Poets Beach, um, you know, similar, that's where we put into the big float. A lot of people know human access from the big float event that we put on every year. Kind of canceled this year, of course. But over the last nine years, we've brought 25,000 people to the Willamette River through that event. We put in at Poets Beach. So 
by cleaning up that beach and people already being familiar with it there. You know, the biggest thing that I look to do is establish use, you know, put the energy in to try to establish use at these places because it just makes a more compelling argument that people see value in uh, doing these things. There's just there's never enough money in the city budget, particularly now, to get all the things done that need to get done. There's it's always a matter of competing priorities. So yeah, you know, just uh, try to try to stay active, try to stay interesting, try to keep people engaged, and try to build the base. It's certainly easier to go to city hall when you have a base of people behind you that support the work you're doing. It makes the decision less risky for politicians. Yeah. Willie, where can folks find out more information about the Human Access Project? Our website, humanaccessproject.com, Facebook. We have a pretty active Facebook feed, so that's where you can find the latest information. And, uh, yeah, YouTube, there's some pretty cool YouTube videos on our Human Access Project channel if you really wanted to dive in and see kind of some of the past stuff that we've done. Excellent. I love that. Dive in. (laughs) I see what you did there. <laughs> what? Yeah, I know. It's like you when you do your work, it's impossible not to talk in metaphors. It is pretty funny. Yeah. yeah. Well, Willie, thank you so much for joining us this morning, and thank you for sharing a little bit about the Human Access Project. Yeah, thanks for uh, listening, and I, I really appreciate your questions. And, uh, and yeah, hey, hopefully, maybe we'll see you on the river sometime. Looking forward to it, and I look forward to connecting again soon. Right on. Yeah, thanks for the support. I appreciate it. That's Willie Levinson, founder of the Human Access Project. Thanks to Alex and to Willie for joining the local and big thanks to the production team. Editors Will Romy, Miranda Selinger, Jonathan Covington-Brem, Sophie Mallon, Brian Miller, Carly Quadros, and Jaleesa Ringering. And writers including a bunch of them, also Kate Kay, Julia Oppenheimer, Joey Palchik, Barb Seaman, Mike Selig, Ryder Sherwood, Sam Smargiasi, and Brandon Tokfest. Big shout out to co-executive producer Emily Gilliland, and I'm Jefferson Smith. Feel free to send story ideas and suggestions to the local at xray.fm. You can also post compliments and five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite platform. Big thanks to original journalism and research by the Lund Report, Oregon Health Authority, covid19.healthdata.org, the Oregon Historical Society, Portland Business Journal, Lamb Week, Pamplin Media, OPB, The Oregonian, The Bend Bulletin, Statesman Journal, Pike Portland Street Roots, KGW, and News Partners Bridgeliner, and The Portland Mercury. Thanks for supporting all of those local journalists, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thanks also for subscribing and giving your five-star review. Pretty, 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 please. And thank you, democracy. Talk to you on Monday. X-Ray.